So the whole world came within eight people of total destruction, right? But God was gracious to Noah. Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God uses Noah to save the world in a real way, to save the human race. Our hopes are high. He's an obedient man, a man who has shown his trust in the Lord, his obedience to incredibly challenging commands in horrible circumstances. And he's a worshiper of the Lord, someone who is now in covenant relationship with the Lord. Verse 18 of chapter 9. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were, remember these three, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. I want to pay attention to that little parenthetical comment. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Right? Which means they were all spread abroad, and that sounds really good, right? Because God said, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. So God's will, as they get off the, off the ark, is to have lots of children and to spread out all over the earth. And the author says this is where they came from when the people spread out. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. So he's like a gardener. So again, kind of like, like Adam. And he seems to be a great guy. But then verse 21 of chapter 9. Noah drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And then Shem and Japheth took a garment. They walk in. They basically cover up their dad. They don't look. And I don't even know for sure. We're not even sure all that happens there with Ham when he goes in, but this is such a sad scene right here. Noah gets drunk, exposes himself. Ham comes in, something evil seems to happen. Verse 24, when Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, curse it. Now, we're going to look at what he says. But I, I just want us to feel what I think we ought to feel. I mean, we, sometimes we just don't, we don't realize the hope of the world being in Noah at this point, coming out like a new Adam to a new world. He's been an obedient man, trusted the Lord. The world's been washed clean from its sin through the waters. And then we find out in this story that Noah is too much like the first Adam. That though the world has been washed clean from its sin in a way, sin still lies in the human heart, even in a man like Noah and even in his family. Even though they have been rescued and have seemingly trusted the Lord, all of them, Ham does this, Noah does this, and, and our hearts hurt because the world is not going to be rescued through Noah, not like it needs to be, because he's too much like the first Adam. Yeah, God uses Noah to spare the world, but Noah doesn't seem to be the one that's gonna, that God's going to use to crush the serpent, because Noah's a sinner. Noah's a sinner like Adam. So are his offspring. 
Noah wakes up, sees, understands what's happened, and I want to look at what he says. It's going to be the last things that Noah says in the Bible. And one of the things I'd encourage you to do, pay attention to the last words of people, especially in the first few books of the Bible. Noah says, Cursed be Ham. Right? No, no. That's interesting. It doesn't say that, does it? You'd think it would. I mean, after all, Ham seems to have done whatever that happened there. He was the one responsible, right? But Noah says, Cursed be Canaan. Now, now who's Canaan? Ham is the father of Canaan. If the hope of the world is in offspring, offspring is a huge deal in the Bible. Noah puts a curse on Ham's offspring, Canaan. And you might want to just kind of put a pin in that idea, keep that in your mind uh, for a while, that Canaan is under this curse. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. But Noah continues, and it's not all curses. Instead, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So God is going to have a special relationship with Shem, it seems like, and Canaan is destined to be the servant of Shem and his line. May God enlarge Japheth as well, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem. Maybe let Japheth dwell in the tents of Shem, or maybe let God dwell in the tents of Shem, maybe emphasizing again that God is going to have a special relationship with Shem of the sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And let Canaan be his servant too, you see. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Those are the last words of, of Noah. And what are, we, what are we supposed to take away from them? The whole world has been kind of leading us down to Noah and his family, and then we knew there's three offspring, and we kind of got to trace those three. Well, Ham, that doesn't seem to be a good direction. His offspring, Ham, is uh, or Ham's offspring, Canaan, is, is cursed. Well, that doesn't seem to be the path we're going to need to look for an offspring that may be able to rescue us. What about Shem and Japheth? Now, it seems like they're both going to be blessed, but God's going to have a unique relationship with which one of Noah's offspring? With Shem. Now, the, the name Shem, interestingly, means name. So Shem means name, and I think you want to pay attention to that because I think there might be a little wordplay uh, going on here as we go on. Now look at chapter 10. These are the generations of the sons of Noah. Whenever you see that, you might want to pay attention uh, to that in Genesis. Shem, Ham, and Japheth, sons were born to them after the flood. Now I just want to, we're not going to look through all of this because you got a ton of names. Chapter 10 basically lists out about 70 families, 70 nations, 70 people groups that are going to scatter all over the world. You'll see like verse 2, the sons of Japheth, and it's going to list a whole bunch. Verse 5 says, from these the coastland peoples spread in their lands, each with his own language. That's interesting. When did that happen? When did they get the languages? Verse 6, the sons of Ham, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan. And then it Tells you all about them. Uh, and it goes down through there, follows Canaan and his, his line. These are the sons of Ham, down in verse 20. So it kind of wraps it up. And then it moves to Shem, in verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, 
uh, perhaps Eber is the father of the Hebrews. I don't know. But uh, the, the line of Shem is then traced. Remember, Shem's name kind of means name. Verse 31, these are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. These are the clans of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies and their nations. And from these, the nations spread abroad on the earth after the flood. I mean, this seems good, right? Because God told them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And they spread out in chapter 10 and fill the earth. It all seems really good, right? They actually are doing what God says, right? That's why they spread out. That's what it seems like. But then there's like, what is, what is the deal with all this language stuff? I'm sure these guys all spoke the same language, right? On the, on the ark. I don't think they were on the ark, not able to talk about the animals or to communicate with each other. Uh, so what's the deal with all the languages? And uh, did they really just spread out in obedience to the Lord? That's kind of what you think in chapter 10. But then uh, look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. Now wait a second. Chapter 10, do you see what just happened? Chapter 10 took us further in the chronology, further down the road, but then we've been pulled all the way back to a time before a lot of the stuff in chapter 10. Because the earth didn't just have many languages to start. The earth all had one language and the same words so what happened verse 2 and as people this is chapter 11 verse 2 and as people migrated from the east they found a plain in the land of shinar and settled there and they said to one another come let's make bricks and burn them and they had bricks and whatnot verse 4 and then they said come let's build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I mean, what's going on there? Verse 5, the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. Do you catch what's going on? This is a time before all the spreading out. God had told them after the ark spread out and what do we find they don't want to do it they all have one language and they want to be together they do not want to spread out and fill the earth so they build this tower why do they build the tower reach up to the heavens let's build it so we can make a name a shem for ourselves is what they want they are united i mean picture humanity is united and what is it that can unite humanity they're gathered together against God. They are specifically gathered together so that they do not have to be dispersed over the face of the earth, which is God's will for them. Instead, they are united in rebellion. And we are getting a picture very quickly that the world on the other side of the flood is not all that different than the world on the front side of the flood. Well, God comes down to see this, and how does God feel about it? Verse 6, And the Lord said, Behold, they're one people. They all have one language. This is only the beginning of what they're going to do. Nothing they propose to do will be impossible. So come, let us go down. So again, God, like taking counsel with himself. What is this? Maybe the third time. Let's go down, and there confuse their language so that they don't understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth. 
and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. I mean, so that's really interesting. It's one thing just to keep in mind as a reader that the stories don't have to be in chronological order. Sometimes the author might want to switch things around, rearrange the chronology a little bit so that you see different things at the time that the author wants you to see them. So chapter 10, we're just looking, wow, there's all these nations and all these languages, and this seems like they're all obeying the Lord, and then pulls a little switcheroo, chapter 11. No, 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 it didn't happen because of human obedience. It happened because of human disobedience. It happened in spite of what human beings wanted. God had to come down and confuse their languages and spread them out all over the earth because they were united in rebellion against God. By the way, this is where human languages come from, the differences in human languages. It all comes back to the Tower of Babel. You have your struggles with learning languages just like I do. I wish we could communicate. It creates barriers. It creates uh, divisions among people because of the languages. This is part of God's curse. Though I love languages, though they're beautiful, though I even teach languages, this is part of the curse that has fractured humanity. God's intention was for human beings to spread out. They wouldn't do it. And so God confuses the languages to make them do it. And he spreads them out over all the peoples. They're spread out from Babel. And then verse 10 of chapter 11, these are the generations of Shem. And that might be an important line. Now we've already in chapter 10 kind of traced the line of Shem, but I think the author really wants us to see the line of Shem, doesn't he? Because it's in Shem's line that there's going to be some people who have close relationship with God. And now we start to follow Shem's line and we follow it down and down and down to verse 26 of chapter 11, when a guy named Terah had lived 70 years, he fathered a guy named Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah. See, it's just tracking. The Bible is on a search for the offspring, for the offspring of the woman. And we're going one generation or many generations after another, but tracing the line. It's gone from Adam through Seth down to Noah. Now through Shem, down to a man named Terah, who has a son named Abram. And he has other sons, Nahor and Haran. Now these are the generations of Terah, in verse 27. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah, in the land of his kindred, in Ur of the Chaldeans. The Chaldeans being another name for the Babylonians, for Babylon. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai. The name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. Verse 30, now Sarai was barren. She had no child, no offspring. It seems like the whole world, 11 chapters, have been waiting for this man, Abram, and that woman, Sarai. Everything in the story for 11 chapters has been leading us down. It's been funneling the story down to the offspring of Shem, to the offspring of Terah, to Abram. And the first thing we find out about Abram, other than that he's from Ur of the Chaldeans, he's from, he's from Babylon, 
more or less, is that Abram has a wife named Sarai. And for the very first time in the Bible, we find out that there's a woman who's barren, who's not able to have any offspring. You say, why would the whole story be leading us down to a man with a barren wife? If the hope of the world is in offspring, how can God lead it down to a man named Abram who's got a wife who can't have offspring? But as we leave chapter 11, I want us to think about the relationship of chapter 10 and chapter 11. Chapter 10 lists out all of these families, all of these people groups all over the world. We come in then to chapter 11 and we find out that happened in that way because of God's judgment at Babel, because of the people's rebellion, united rebellion against God, where they wanted to make a Shem a name for themselves and not follow the Lord. And then immediately the author points you again to the generations of Shem, a name which means name, and traces it down to a man named Abram. Whatever is going on with Abram, I think seems to be God's response to the judgment of Babel and the spreading out of the people all over the world into all these different people groups. That was judgment, but maybe in Abram, God's going to bring mercy and hope. Because if you step back now, 11 chapters in, this seems to be the way God works. When human beings rebelled in the garden, what did God do? He came down in judgment. But in the midst of judgment, what did God do? He offered mercy. Even in the story of Cain, Cain commits horrible sin, and so God comes down in judgment on him. And then Cain pleads for mercy, and God shows some mercy. In the flood, human beings are rebelling everywhere against God, so God comes down in judgment on their sin. But in the midst of judgment, God gives mercy through Noah. And then at Babel, humanity rebels against God. So God comes down in judgment. And now that cycle maybe gets us to think maybe there's going to be hope. And where might hope be found? It might be found in a man named Abram, who's married to a woman named Sarah, who can't have any offspring. That seems like a tough situation, but maybe that seems like a place where God's going to show up. Mm -hmm.